Welcome to The Big Schmear. I'm the host, Beth Schenker, and I'm happy you're joining me for the best of The Big Schmear. It's my one-year anniversary, and I decided to celebrate by selecting a few clips highlighting many of the guests from previous episodes. I'm afraid I couldn't limit this to one best of episode, so here's part two. It's August 2017, and I'm in Detroit at the Michigan Jewish Food Festival. They're tearing down the booths, and most visitors have headed home. I'm not going anywhere, though, because I've been able to connect with Liz Alpern of the Gefilteria. She's all over Ashkenazi cooking, and if you are located in a place where she's presenting a food demo, you just have to go. As we sit down to chat, she gives me a little background on how she got into cooking. The first thing is to say that I didn't grow up in a cooking family, and so it's not like I, from day one, was at the apron strings of my mother or grandmother. Um, by the time I was, I was the youngest grandchild uh, on my mother's side, and so by the time I was old enough to be aware, I mean, my grandmother was like done in the kitchen, even though she was pretty well known for being a good cook. Uh, and my mom uh, did, you know, we always ate healthy, but she was certainly not a cook. So I didn't do any of that. And um, so one of the jokes that I like to tell is that I I think I got into food partially uh, out of some need to kind of correct the past of that. I just needed to nurture myself. So I ended up, you know, cooking all the time, uh, professionally especially. She showed early signs of being an entrepreneur. I went to school in Canada. I went to McGill University in Montreal, and you didn't live in a dorm. There were no dorms. It's a different, kind of a different system. So I had to start cooking for myself from the time I was 17. And, uh, and I, you know, I was always into being healthy and thoughtful about what I ate, just, you know, I don't know, I guess I just was. And, um, and so I, you know, I really cared about cooking, and, and what ultimately happened was I started cooking for other people. So I would cook Shabbat dinners, or I would cook, uh, you know, my house was just the kind of house from the first, you know, from the first days of being on my own where people would come over and get fed. Um, and I didn't totally know what I was doing, but I, I was excited enough about it to try. And I really loved hosting. I loved having people over and feeding them. And so I got better and better just out of necessity because, you know, when you have to feed people, you also want to feed them well. And then I also, um, there was no kosher bakery nearby where I lived in, in Montreal, and I started baking challah and selling it for Shabbat because I... I got really into baking challah, and people said it's so good, and there was nowhere to get challah. It was sort of this need. So that was always, that was like my first business, was selling challah and bicycling it around Montreal, the student neighborhood. And here's the step that got her propelled toward her calling with Gefilteria. When we got together, Jeffrey and I just started talking about Jewish food. For us, we felt like Gefiltevich was the ultimate symbol of how bad things had gotten with Ashkenazi cooking. So we, we thought of that jar of gefilte fish on the shelf as literally the bottom of, 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 of yeah, of the barrel. I mean, it was literally so, I mean, and, and the reason that it was so depressing was not just because it's gross, but people really like it, but I don't. But um, the, the reason it was depressing is actually because gefilte fish was once a symbol of resourcefulness of our people. It was a symbol of how far one fish would go to feed a family. So you'd, you'd get a little fish, you know, you'd take out the inside, stuff it with all these fillers like eggs and onions and breadcrumbs, and then you'd stuff the, the fish meat back into the skin, and all of a sudden this tiny fish became a lot bigger, and 
And people would save up, I mean, our ancestors would save up all week just to get that fish. And so to see that dish, that sort of really clever, interesting dish, be stuffed into a jar with synthetic gel, it, it was tragic, I'd say. And the truth was, is that people loved to point to gefilte fish as a reason for the decline of Ashkenazi cuisine. They'd say, well, who would ever want to eat this or cook this? And so we felt like if we could start with that bottom of the barrel, then we could do anything from that. So we, we, you know, we, always, it's, we always think of gefilte fish was our real inspiration. It was our jumping off point. But it led us very quickly into you know, the entire Ashkenazi culinary canon. Last November, I traveled to New Jersey to attend my first ever kosher fest. It's this amazing kosher food conference with over 700 booths. You'll find anything and everything that's connected with kosher food, and everyone and anyone in the kosher food business attends. Some folks have attended for decades, and there are so many food samples it makes you a little dizzy. I caught up with a number of interesting people, and in this episode you'll hear from Paula Scheuer, a cookbook writer, the Kosher Culinary Center, and the Kosher Guru, one half of a kosher food marketing company. My first cookbook came out in 2010, but I was working on it for five years until I could find a publisher to publish it. So I was told by every major publishing company that there was no market for kosher baking cookbooks. I published two baking books, now I've done two other books. I think I proved them wrong. I certainly had to work very hard to prove it, but I'm really proud of this. And I really feel like I add to our community and bring joy to people's homes and get people in the kitchen who don't want to bake and don't want to cook. One of the surprises, as I was going up and down the very long aisles of booths, was discovering the Kosher Culinary Center. Who knew there was something like this happening? And what a great opportunity for aspiring kosher chefs and home cooks looking to improve their skills. So we have a professional career training program, which consists of 54 days, where students come for about three to four months, depending on when the holidays fall, and they receive a certificate of completion after and the chef helps place them at a job it doesn't even have to be in a restaurant it could be helping start a career as a private chef as a private caterer anything related to the kosher culinary world because he has a huge network people are always calling him telling him they need help so he matches a with b then we also have recreational side which is for people coming to just cook and enjoy our be best-selling nights are culinary date night and steak night. Those are always sold out. They, you pay one time, you come for four hours, you're taught what to do, you make your own dinner. We set out white tablecloths, everybody enjoys the dinner, everybody makes their own dessert. And we have pasta classes, sushi classes, the list goes on and on. Hanukkah, Thanksgiving 101. And finally, we also do special events, small birthday parties, small bat mitzvahs, things like that. My last stop at Kosher Fest was a visit with Gabriel Boxer, or as he likes to call himself, the Kosher Guru. Okay, so I am Kosher Guru, Gabriel Boxer, I should say, a.k.a. Kosher Guru. We are Team Kosher Guru, myself and Yossi Atzer, my partner on Kosher Guru. And what we do, or what we like to think we do, is bringing kosher to the masses in a fun way from videos and fun posts and very informative productions as well and I guess in a quick nutshell that's what we do I gewalt on a typical day well on a typical day I eat a lot um, as it could show or as it, as it does show I should say 
but I eat a lot, I go out to a lot of restaurants, meet with a lot of clients within the kosher food industry, and I help them with their product or place to try and place them properly within the kosher world and help them build their social brand on Instagram, Facebook, a little bit of Twitter, YouTube, of course, on their blog, and we just like to bring kosher to the masses. And speaking of bringing kosher food to the masses, next up are a few words from Jamie Geller. She's a cookbook writer living in Israel, an entrepreneur, and you can watch her cook on Facebook. I caught up with her in December right here in Chicago. As I was asking about her early food influences in her life, she gave me some family background that I was definitely not expecting. My mother never cooked. My family's from Transylvania, and my parents immigrated to America in 1964. My mother had great dreams for her daughters, never to be, you know, balabustas, which is like the Yiddish term for essentially like homemakers. She wanted us in the land of opportunity to be doctors and lawyers and CEOs, and she sent us to the best schools, and I think she just kind of um, rebelled against the old world woman in the kitchen kind of um um, theme and so she never cooked. She never wanted to cook. She had no interest in cooking. And when she actually built, we uh, she built a home when I was like nine years old, and she actually wanted to build it without a kitchen. And really? Then when everyone told her, "Well, that's a little ridiculous. You can't build a house without a kitchen." <laughs> she decided to put it off to the side of the house, the kitchen. She put by the garage, so she never had to walk through it. And you know now, like, the kitchen is so central to the architecture and the design of a home. It's the heart of the home. Sure. It's a great room, kitchen, family room, living room. It's everything. That was her just off to the side of the house, so she never, ever had to walk through it. So um, I did not grow up with her home cooking at all, but my grandparents were amazing cooks. One grandfather was a butcher. Another grandfather was a chef and restaurateur, and they always cooked for us all the holidays we either spent there or they brought the food over to our home. And I have amazing memories of the holidays and Jewish food in my grandparents' kitchen. Jamie's career started in journalism and TV, but with the birth of her first child and a little more experience in the kitchen, she found herself following a new path. Once I had my baby, I just I went on maternity leave and I did not want to leave her. I didn't want to leave her for 12, 14, 16-hour days. And so while I was on maternity leave deciding what to do, my husband said to me, you should write a cookbook. Because I was the bride who knew nothing, and I said, over time I got recipes from family and from friends, and my, like I said, my husband taught me, and his mother came into the kitchen with me, and his stepmother came into the kitchen with me, and I, I, you know, went from a lot of terrible mistakes and mishaps in the kitchen to nicely edible food, and I thought, you know what, what a nice career, how wonderful! I could just be at home with my baby and type this little book on, you know, on the computer. <laughs> And I just kind of like have been there, done that with the television industry. And so that was the beginning of sort of the change in path. And as I wrote the book, I wrote a lot about my life. It was like an autobiography cookbook. And it was called Quick and Kosher, Recipes from the Bride Who Knew Nothing. <laughs> and I told so much about my life and what it was like to be a new wife and a new mother and, and, and new to the whole kosher scene and um, all the mistakes in the kitchen. And then the book turned into a website, turned into uh, online cooking shows, and then another book, and then a magazine. And my whole background in media and producing obviously played a big role in the evolution from book to now. But now I could see it wasn't wasted time over there being a producer. No, and I think people already have a sense that you don't waste time. 
Yeah. Met the guy, engaged in some ridiculously short amount of yes. time, gets married. I mean, you know, you don't sit around and wait for yes, things to happen. Yes, I don't. Yeah, you're very, you, got, you hit the nail on the head, Beth. I had a great opportunity to talk with Gil Hovav. Gil is amazing. He comes from a family that played a huge role in Israeli history. He was a joy to talk with and tons of fun. Yes, I have some great figures in my family. <laughs> uh, the first, of course, is Eliezer ben Yehuda, my great-grandfather uh, from my mother's side. And also my father, Moshe Chovav, who was the head of the Israeli, of the IBA, of the Israeli Broadcasting Authority, and the news announcer that, you know, uh, on the radio, he's the one who was doing all the wars, and he's the one who uh, informed the people that Jerusalem was liberated, etc., etc. So he is considered sort of the voice of God. And after a sense of his family background, we talked about food and family memories. The favorite family dish that I really love is a, the Shabbat brunch dish, the Yemenite Shabbat brunch dish. Uh -huh. So Yemenites on Shabbat, if they're religious, they go to synagogue. We were not religious. We never did. But they have a certain brunch that's called kubane. Kubane is a very big loaf of bread that's baked overnight. So it's sort of like chulnt, but right. much poorer, much poorer. It's a... Uh -huh. uh, it's only flour and water and yeast. And you eat it with some condiments, with tomato sauce, with shrug, which is a Yemenite salsa, with hilbe, which is another sauce. And uh, we would have it at my uh, grandmother from my father's side. My grandmother from my mother's side, we lived together. But my grandmother from my father's side lived in a nearby neighborhood, a very poor neighborhood in Jerusalem. And we would walk every Saturday morning to have it with her and with all her children. She had seven children. My father was not the eldest. He, uh -huh. he had six brothers and sisters. And they uh, all had children already. So they all flocked from all over Israel every Shabbat to Jerusalem to have Kubane at the grandma's house. And my mother would always warn us, remember kids, the pot is small, the family is big, <laughs> there's not enough for everybody, there's one piece per person, and she would always look at me and she would say, and you, smart one, you think that if you say that food is great, we don't understand that you want seconds? No seconds! <laughs> if there won't be enough, grandma will be very offended. Don't ask for more. Then we would come, of course, my mother would be shouting that we came late and now everybody ate our food. Eventually, my grandmother would call everybody to the kitchen, open the lid from the pot, take out the kubane. Miraculously, there was one piece per person. <laughs> and in the end, every Saturday, my grandmother would say, look, there's one extra slice of kubane. Anyone for seconds? And my mother would, you know, look at us like this. Don't utter a word. We were all silent. And then my mother would say, nobody, I'd have it. So uh -huh. there. I learned that women are very <laughs> mischievous and very, you know, <laughs> they have their agendas. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. We do. We appreciate that. <laughs> That's a great story. And here's how his love of cooking got started. As I said, we, we live together with my grandmother. So it's my mother, my father, my, my brother, and myself, and my grandmother, my mother's mother. And as it was always put to us, she did not live with us. We lived with her. Uh -huh. And uh, she was the empress of the house. We always had two maids, and she was bossing them around. But <laughs> the kitchen was her kingdom. 
And I was the weakest and, and, and the weakest, goofy, frail little grandchild, you know, that was running after all the, the, the big ones and the being the annoying person that I still am. <laughs> and she always protected me. So now you would assume that I would say that uh, I was, was with her in the kitchen and uh, this is where I learned how to cook. Mm -hmm. The other way around. With Sephardi families, Jew, uh, men in the kitchen bring only two things, dirt and bad luck. She Ooh. never let me into the kitchen, oh never, no. not even once. Uh, the day she died, when I was 20 years old, I was a soldier. The very day she died, I started cooking, only to preserve her flavors. Sure. So it's uh, 35 years ago, um, oh. and, and this is why I cook. Moving from Israel to New York City, I decided to do something a bit different. And at the suggestion of a friend, I interviewed Joanne Oppenheim, the author of the children's book entitled The Kanish Wars on Rivington Street. It's a story based on events that actually took place. Her project started out with some serious research. Oh, it was one surprise after another. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I found out is that Max Green, one of the one of the Knishery owners in the original Knish War claimed to be the originator of Knishes, which, of course, was not true. Knishes began long before in the old country. Mm -hmm. They were uh, peasant food. They were, they were popular food even there. And, in fact, just a few blocks away from Rivington Street, Yona Schimmel had already begun selling Knishes in 1910, and this story happens in 1916. I don't know what year Max Green really started. I do know when he left uh, the Knish business because, or at least he moved his Knish business because when I went to the site on Rivington Street, I discovered that the building Max Green had been in was at one time, it was, it, it, at this moment, it's a construction site for multi-million dollar co-op apartments. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of funny when you think about the price war for knishes that yeah. happened there. But in 1925, that building became one of four buildings that became the Streit's matzah factory. Oh, my gosh. And it wasn't until last year that it went down, that that went down, and these co-ops are going up. So Oof. the site of the Knish War has a real food history. I feel good about that. Are there different responsibilities as the author of a children's book? One of the debates that is ongoing, I think, is about whether which is best, a fried Knish right. or a baked Knish. And I have my own preferences, but I decided that would make another element to the book that mm -hmm. would be fun. And uh, so that I added. Also, the newspaper stories. It wasn't just the Times. There were other newspapers that had stories about it. They, uh, they didn't have a solution for how it ended. They only reported that it was ongoing, but they never, there was never a follow-up story of how oh, no. it got settled. So I had to invent an ending. I thought I thought the the ending that you invented was excellent, my my own opinion. But I, I 
I was very pleased with the ending. I thought it was good. All right. Well, we, we don't have to give a spoiler alert. I think we can say <laughs> that I brought in the mayor. Uh, first, I brought in the Keystone, the Keystone's cops kind of image. And then I brought in the, uh, the mayor. And the mayor said something that I really wanted to say in this book, because this is a book for children, and it isn't just about the price war. I really wanted to talk about the idea that there doesn't need to be one best thing. There can be more than one. Children often want to be the best. They want the fastest. They want the newest. It's all superlatives. And one of the big hard things to learn in life is that it doesn't have to be that way. There can be more than one good thing. So I would say um, it's all right that you might prefer fried knishes and I might prefer baked, but um, that's the big, the big underlying message that I think. And of course, you don't want to hit kids on the head with a message, but on the other hand, the book has to say something. But what about getting down to eating knishes? I thought, as I was doing the book, wouldn't it be nice to have recipes for making knishes in the back of the book? And I mentioned that to my editor, and she said, oh, yes. And then uh, we were all finished with the book, and everything was in place. And the next thing I knew, she said, but, but where is the recipe? Where are the recipes? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, uh, well, you, you're going to get those right. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to make knishes. So she said, well, you're going to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, had to read a lot, a lot of recipes. And then, then, of course, I had to adapt it and make them my own. And then, of course, I couldn't hand that over without first trying them. <laughs> Absolutely. So it was beginner's luck. They turned out to be scrumptious. <laughs> Yay. But I, I'm never going to make them again. Oh, no. I'm sure it was beginner's luck. I know it's a bit odd, but I'm following this with a bit of my conversation with Sonnet Bernicker Hart. She's president of Koval Distillery. And we decided to start Chicago's first distillery since the mid-1800s because my husband grew up distilling as a, as a child. I, I Not your average weird, way to but, grow up. <laughs> no, but <laughs> his, his grandparents have a, a functioning distillery and winery in Austria. And so it was chores for him to help with the fruit and processing the fruit. And, and it was a business. And so he was involved in it uh, from a very young age and so had the knowledge as to how to do it. I mean, he never thought he would do it for his <laughs> life. I mean, he went and got a PhD as well. I think he was one of the first in the fa his family to have a PhD. But now he's one of the ones carrying on the family tradition of distilling. So it was really about coming home. And since I didn't have ruby slippers, I just had to make it happen. What is the connection between distilling and Jewish? Distilling has everything to do with Jews. And I'll tell you why. Okay, And it I'm actually ready. has to do with Jewish women. Oh, I like it better. There you go. Because the person who actually made the first still, and this is in ancient Egypt, really? funny enough, was a Jewish woman. Oh. And, um, she was called, I think, uh, something like Maria the Jewess. But, and there are medieval texts that refer to her construction of a still that was used to distill you know, tinctures or, or various sort of medicinal products, but they were distilled products. Whoa. So we actually 
owe distilling in general to a Jewish woman. So it's about Jewish identity, but this work is also about sustainability and making a difference. This whole project is about who we are, and our, it's an extension of our identities. I mean, neither of us are visual artists, but we feel that this is artistic in its own way because we're, we're not just doing a brand and buying it from somebody and bottling it. We're making everything from scratch, and we're taking great pride in the entire process. And I feel that there's absolutely an art to that, to doing something, manufacturing something really well, and and caring about how it's presented to the world. And because this is an extension of us, we're Jewish. I wanted to have a product that's that also says to the world, this is Jewish in, the, in mm-hmm. the sense that this is kosher. So any Jewish person that's looking for a product that they can feel confident in uh, that, that adheres to their world view and how they live their lives. I mean, I feel that, that this does that. Um, but it's also organic too, which is another extension of who we are. And we care about sustainable agriculture and we care about being a manufacturer that uses a lot of grain and more and more every year. And with that in mind, you know, our buying power for raw materials also affects how they are grown. And so if we're buying a lot of organic, you know, raw materials, those farmers will plant more organic mm-hmm. raw materials. And I feel that that is good for the land. And I, we have seen from the very beginning more and more opportunities to uh, work with organic farmers than when we started. And I think that that's because of companies like ours that are affecting how people plant. Some of you probably remember my interviews with Emily Pastor, cookbook writer of The Joys of Jewish Preserving. I had a lot of fun with Emily, and in fact, she's responsible for helping me get over my fear of canning. I actually went to one of her demos and then made peach butter over the weekend, and it was a success. So yay me, and thank you, Emily. It just occurred to me one day that so many of our iconic particularly in the Ashkenazi tradition, which is what I was more familiar with at the time, but so many of our iconic Jewish foods are either preserves themselves, and you mentioned pickles, sauerkraut might be another example, or incorporate a preserved element. And what I mean by that is when I I say something like, we put jam in our rugelach, we put jam in our hamantaschen, we put applesauce on our latkes, those are all preserves. So when you start to, and this is just off the top of your head, you start to sort of tick off, oh yeah, there's a lot to it. And that was before I even started researching the book and realizing, in fact, how rich the preserving tradition was, not only on the Ashkenazi side, but also on the Sephardic side as well. Thank you for listening and for indulging me on this first anniversary episode. Before I close, I want to wish you all a Shana Tova, best wishes for a happy, healthy, and food-filled new year. The excerpts heard on this program were edited and engineered by the very talented Mary Mazurik, Steve Robinson, Malcolm Addy, and Hudson Fair. Steve Robinson was the editor for the best of the Big Schmear. Our theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. 
Please check out thebigschmear.com for recipes shared by some of my guests, and be sure to like us on Facebook. I'm the host of The Big Schmear, Beth Schenker. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.